Well, uh, we are looking at the moment at some of the Old Testament, the first three quarters of the Bible, and uh, we've been asking these two particular questions, like, well, what does this passage mean in its original context, but also, how does this, this piece of text written thousands of years ago, how does it tell us about Jesus and the good news. And so we launched last week into the book of Ruth. I set you guys some homework. I don't know if any of you gave these seven and a half minutes uh, to read through the rest of the book of Luke. Don't worry, I won't ask for a show of hands. Um, But uh, we've been really trying to delve in to see what this beautiful little story will tell us about God. Um, And if you were a bit disappointed last week because you're like, you told us we were doing Ruth and you didn't mention Ruth once, you looked at these other characters, I'm disappointed, um, then don't worry, don't worry. This morning we are going to delve into the character, the lady called Ruth. And so uh, just to give you a quick recap, in case you weren't here last week, there's this family, uh, Jewish family. The dad is called Elimelech, the mom is called Naomi, and they have two sons. And in a time of crisis, a time of famine, they leave their home in Bethlehem and they journey to this enemy nation, if you want, where the Moabites live. And tragically in this place, the father, Elimelech, dies and the two sons die, leaving behind three widows, the mother, Naomi, and her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. Um, And so we are going to uh, read the next little bit of the story. Antoine's going to bring it to us. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, always brilliant to have that open in front of you. Uh, If not, it'll be up on the screens. And uh, we are reading from Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to me and your dead husbands. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there is still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. It's the word of God. So last week we talked about the place of disappointment. 
and how we deal with those moments in life when we are tempted to run, to turn away. Today, though, I want to talk to you about the power of friendship. And what we just heard read by Antoine there is this decision that Naomi makes to return home to her people. We read uh, this week and last about that sense of bitterness, the pain, the frustration, the disappointments that she must have held deep within her heart as she did even that. But we also just got a glimmer, and maybe you saw it this week if you read all the way through to chapter four, of what is to come next, of redemption, of healing, of transformation, of hope, about how God takes Naomi from bitterness to beauty, from famine to feast. And maybe last week we really focused in on the why, but today I want to talk about the how. How is it that God transformed Naomi's life? Because if we can answer that question, maybe we can get a bit of a glimpse into how maybe God might want to work in our lives today, tomorrow, for the rest of our time on earth. And as we just heard it read, the answer is kind of surprising, right? When I hear of God doing something mighty, my mind, I don't know if yours does, it goes to like the dramatic, you know, the miracles. I grew up in a a church tradition, which was like all about seeing God do spectacular, big healings, people getting out of wheelchairs, like miraculous provision of finances. I grew up in a church tradition, which believed that God could do anything in any moment, in any way. Anyone grew up in a church like that, believe that? Literally nobody. No, no, I know know some of you did. And I still believe that. But it's interesting that in this particular moment, the way that God transforms Naomi's life is in something quite a different way. The way that he grows her, leads her, transforms her is through people, through family, friendships. And I want to suggest to you this morning that the primary way that God wants to work in your life and he wants to work in my life in the day-to-day is in the same way. And if that's the case because God works through people to enact his will. God works through people to bring transformation, to bring healing, to bring justice. And it's not just in the book of Ruth you see that. You actually see it all the way through the Bible. Almost every week I feel like I get you to go back to Genesis 1. And I do it because it gives us this blueprint of what the world was intended to look like. And if you were to look at Genesis 1 and 2, you see this beautiful story of creation of humans. But one of the most like, profound verses in the middle of it is Genesis 1.26. And it says this, Then God said, let's make mankind, womankind, humankind in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And you see that in the middle of that, there is this word image, that God made human beings in his image. And theologians for literally millennia have debated, like, what does it mean that humans are made in the image of God? And people have gone like, is it about language? Is it about morality? Is it about relationships? Is it about worship? Like, how is it that humans are made in the image of God in a different way, it seems, to the animals? Now, I'm sure that all of those things contribute. But there may not be the original intent of how the first audience would have heard the word image. 
Because actually when it would have been heard about the time when Genesis 1 and 2 were written, the word image would have applied to a temple. The, the imagery all around Genesis 1 and 2 is an image of a temple. In pagan culture, people would go to a temple so that they could worship their deity. And in the middle of the temple, there would be an image of the god, maybe a statue, bronze or gold, and people would go and they would literally bow in front of it and offer their sacrifices, believing that as they did, they would receive the power, receive the presence of the deity figure. And the language all around Genesis 1 and 2, even if we don't recognize it today, is the language of temple. Like People would have read it as like, oh, there is a garden temple. It has gates, they're guarded by seraphim. It's constructed in a particular way. It was made within six days plus one. People's minds would have gone, oh, there's a temple. But they would have also said, well, where's the image? Like, well, where is the deity? He's not there, there's no statue, except he is. His image is in humans. They carry his presence. They carry his power. His image dwells in humanity. And that's a really important thing because that gives us the why. The why we were made. We were made to carry the image of God into the world. Now, not just any type of image, but the image of a very relational God. Now, I don't know if you know this, but before there were humans, there were relationships. Before humans existed, before dinosaurs existed, there was relationships. The relationships of the Trinity, like God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This complete, perfect relational family unit. As one theologian says, that actually it is the most fundamental expression of community and relationship. And so when we as humans say we carry the image of God, one of the things we mean by that is that we are like angled mirrors that reflect that kind of relationship, that kind of relational God out into the world. And we see it. If you go to Genesis chapter 3, when everything goes wrong, right, and God starts this dramatic rescue plan of redemption, how does God start to rescue the world? Well, he does it through people. You know, like, like the, when you hear of Moses, like, oh man, I love Moses, right? And the Israelites are coming out of Egypt and the Egyptians are chasing them with the chariots and they get to the sea. And like, they're like, oh no, we can't cross the sea because we didn't learn to swim in like slavery and we've got our stuff and how are we going to get to the other side? And, and God says to Moses, Moses, take your stick and put it in the sea. Like, it's crazy, like, is it that he's got a magic wand, Harry Potter style, that can move things? Like, no. But yeah, he puts his stick in the sea, and sure enough, like, the waters completely part, and the Israelites walk through. There seems to be something about this interaction of God's power and human willingness and obedience to act into the world. You see that? And it's not just like in Moses, you see it in Abraham, you see it in thing, and you see it through to today. I mean, if you think about like prayer ministry, if you're maybe new to vintage, and you think like, why is it that they, you know, get people to come to the front and put a hand on their shoulder? 
Is it that there are some people with magic hands in the church? Like, and the answer is no. Uh, there are no there, nobody has magic jazz hands at Vintage that I know of. But God instructs us in the Bible to pray in this way because there is something about God's power, our partnership, our willingness, and like our physicality that God chooses to work through. You see it. We see it all over the kingdom of God. God wants to work through people to bring transformation. We are important in his story. And it's exactly what we're looking at today. God transforms Naomi's life through the friendship of Ruth. And because he does that, it gives us a glimpse that God actually will always use community and friends in our lives to move forward his purposes in your life. Let me say that again. God uses the community and friends that you have in your life to move forward his purposes for you. So as we heard it, right, Naomi, this elderly widow, set out for her hometown of Bethlehem. She has very little left, a lot of bitterness, a lot of pain, a lot of disappointment. And her two daughter-in-law say to her, like, hey, don't go alone. We will come with you. But yet you hear Naomi's response, don't, don't, don't come with me. I, I, I am too old to work in the fields to provide for you. I'm too old to have any more children for you to marry. I've got no land. It's all gone. There's no future for you if you come with me. So, Ruth, Orpah, stay. Stay with your own parents. Stay in your own land. Stay with your own future because there it will be better for you. And if you spotted, Orpah says, yes, okay, I will, I will stay. But then, some of my favorite verses in the whole of the Bible, Ruth's response, verse 16 and 17. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you, said Ruth. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you or me. It's such a profound statement. It's, it's so incredible. Where you go, Naomi. I am going to go. Where you choose to stay, I will stay. Your people will become my people. Your God will become your, my God. Like, when I read this this last week, I was just like mind blown by it, reminded of it. I don't, this is just such an incredible level of love. It's such an incredible level of commitment. In fact, I'm not entirely sure that anyone has ever shown so much love for a mother-in-law, ever. Right? Sorry to my mum-in-law. She's probably watching this morning. Hi, Nana. But this is not normal. It's not normal. Right? People do not make covenant commitments at almost marriage level to their friends to say, wherever you're going to go, I'm going to come with you. If you get into trouble, I'm coming to trouble with you. If you are going to get into problems, I'm coming with you. Like, I am going to go wherever you go. It's almost shocking, isn't it? Like within our Western mindset, it's almost like it's too much. It's too much. It's not rational to speak like that. But Ruth 
empties herself for the sake of Naomi, gives of herself, gives of her life almost for the sake of Naomi. But God used friendship to change Naomi's life. And I wonder if God will use friendship to change our lives too. You know, I, um, I've been following Jesus quite a long time now. Uh, I even had hair the very first time I gave my life to Jesus. It was a long time ago. But if I look back over the decades and I look at the way that God has really transformed me, the way that he's changed me, I can tell you about these significant seasons. I can tell you about great conferences I've been to, sermons, books I've read, amazing times of worship, times up on the top of mountains. But if I'm really honest, I can also tell you that beyond every single one of those moments, those events, were people. There were people who were there in the moment and there were people who walked it out with me in the days and weeks and months that followed. I can tell you about mentors who said, Ben, I just, I want to bless you. I need to help you. <laughs> you need some help. <laughs> I could tell you about family members, community groups who've walked through the most painful moments. I could tell you about ministries and volunteering and mission trips. I can tell you about friends, people who have stuck with me and helped me inch by inch, day by day to become that person that God has invited me to be. As that old phrase goes, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. God places us in community for our benefit so that we will become that which he always intended us to be. Right? And it's not, by the way, just like theology to say that. Scientists say that too. And if you've ever heard of a guy called Robin Dunbar, he's a professor at Oxford University, he says this, Friendships protect us from disease, as well as cognitive decline. They help us to be more engaged with the tasks that we have to do. They help us to become more embedded within and trusting of the wider community with which we live. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Rosetto effect. There's a little town in Pennsylvania called Rosetto. And in the 1950s, scientists studied it because they found that for some reason they couldn't work out, the mortality rate was a third lower than any other place in the US. They had lower heart disease, they scored higher on every single health metric. And so they studied this little group of people. And first of all, they tried to figure out, like, is it their diet? Did they eat better? And they were like, no. No, they definitely do not eat like sort of vegan, gluten-free Southern Californians. And so then they looked at like, oh, is it must be their like fitness and their like lifestyles. And they looked at them and they're like, nope, definitely not that. They looked at the amount they smoked, the amount that they drank. They literally looked at every forensic different part of how they chose to live and they could find nothing that was different about them except for their relational connectivity. It was a community where three or four generations regularly lived together under one roof. It was a community where people knew and loved one another and were deeply committed. And their conclusion was that it was that level of relationship and community that made a physiological change in their health and their outcomes. I love it when scientists work out what the Bible has been saying for thousands of years. <laughs> right? We need relationships around us for our spiritual health, but also for everything about who we are made to be. 
But it's not just any types of relationship. Uh, author, and, uh, um, author and leadership expert Jim McNeish, he says particularly we need these four types of relationships if we are to flourish. The first is, he says, uh, we need kings and queens. Uh, not a colonial reference in any sense, but we need some people to challenge us, right? To call us out, to say, like, you can do this, but you're going to need to change to become who you're meant to be. We need, secondly, mentors. Mentors are the people who, who maybe are a little bit further down the line, those who can bring wisdom and clarity, those who help us can see how we're supposed to make the choices that we face. We, we need, thirdly, warriors, the ones who will fight for us and fight alongside us. Those who have our back, who push us on, say, come on, we can do this together. And then finally, fourthly, we need friends. We need friends. We, we need those people who will encourage us, empathize, comfort us, even when we make complete messes and we don't deserve it. We need people around us. Do you have them? Out of that list I gave you, or four, three, two, one of those, maybe none. If you got a little, like, bit of a, a, a sickness in your tummy when, when you heard that list because you're like, well, honestly, I don't know if I have any of those. Don't despair. Don't despair. As a couple, Laura and I, who moved from the UK, for all of our friends, all of our family, those people we grew up with, best men, bridesmaids, university buddies, school buddies, all of those people we grew up with, we left behind five years ago when we moved here. I know that friendship is hard. I know that relationships are really difficult. And I want to say, if you have come this morning and you're like, actually, honestly, Ben, I am deeply disconnected and I'm deeply lonely and I don't know what to do, then I want you to just know that you're not the only person. We live in what is increasingly called a crisis of friendships. Mother Teresa calls it the leprosy of the, rest, of the West. And honestly, I think there are lots of reasons for that. I think there are lots of reasons why living in a city like LA in the 21st century is actually a really difficult place to be in relationship with others. Um, I, I wrote a few things down, but before I do that, let's have a, just check you're all awake and, and, and here, still with us. Just a, a few shout outs. Give me some headlines of why it might be difficult to have relationships, friendships in this moment in LA. Traffic. Traffic. Come on. Thank you. Just so honest. Uh, Laura and I have some wonderful friends who live on the west side. Do you know how often we see them? Never. Like, heaven. It's probably the next time we're going to see them. <laughs> Cell phones, right? D the digital world we live in. Maybe, like, the fact that we have digital relationships. But maybe also that we have, like, digital isolation. Uh, I go to the gym a couple of times a week and... Uh, every time I come back, Laura says to me, hey, Ben, like, how was the gym? And every week I give the same answer. 
yeah, it, it was uh, okay. And, and I think what she's looking for is this sort of deep level of like friendship that I've made with the other people in the gym. But honestly, what happens every single time I go is that I arrive with my headphones either in or on the way in. I have a little chat with the person on the desk at the front, usually about some sport. I go on to do the things on the machines, those things. Occasionally, I have a quick another chat with some people that I vaguely recognize because I've been there for four years and they come every single week like I do. And then I go home. And in the meantime, I just live in my own podcast, working music world, right? We live in a digital, isolated bubble. Any other reasons? Individualism. Oh, individualism. All right, this is about me, it's about what I want, it's about me getting what I want when I want, with who I want, my thing. Anything else? Children. <laughs> I feel like that needs some unpacking somehow. Uh, <laughs> no time. Okay, time. Thank you. I didn't know what else you were going to say. And anything else? Money, unemployment. Thank you. Nomadic, transients. Yeah, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. This is an incredibly transient city. Politics, okay, divisions in our society and cultures and families. Responsibilities, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I also had a couple of things, so, so social media, um, relational hurt, lack of geographic workplaces, because so many of us work into digital spaces where we don't even see people on a daily basis. Honestly, we could go on and on, couldn't we, for a long time. But the result is we're told that increasingly we are a isolated, lonely generation. It's currently reported that amongst US men, and I do think men, we find this even harder, that 20% say that they have no friends, no close friends whatsoever. And I wonder if in LA that number would be higher. So what do we do? If you, like me, read the passage of Ruth, and like, man, I would love a Ruth in my life. I would love that level of community with someone, but I don't have it. What might you do? And so I want to finish by just giving you five things, five uh, maybe very practical things you could do to help you along the way. You can write these down if they're helpful to you. Number one, pray. Now that seems a bit trite, but I believe that God does have relationships for us that maybe we have yet to discover. You know, I, I said it's complicated when you come into a foreign place. I tell you what, for Laura and I, it's complicated being pastors when most of the people you know are in the same church as you and you're the pastors. But it's complicated. But even as I was thinking and praying this last couple of weeks, I, actually got a, I got a text message out of the blue from someone I haven't seen for a few years who was just like, hey, mate, I haven't seen you in ages. I was praying. God brought you to mind. I'd just love to check in and know how you're doing. Could we do a FaceTime? And I just had an hour or two with this wonderful guy on FaceTime. Like, ask the Lord. Number two, um, look in the right places. Um, I figure we could probably all work out what the wrong places to look for friendships are. But, but I think there's a double-edged kind of thing for where we can look for the right kind of relationships. C.S. Lewis says that on the first part of it, that friendships are usually best when they are about something and they're not about someone. They're the kind of shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder relationships. You know, I think, guys, we, we particularly find this hard. Yeah? If you say to me, can we sit in a room, like, eye-to-eye -eye and talk about our feelings, I'm not coming, 
right? I'm, I'm, I'm just not coming, right? But if we could say, like, could we do something together, like that common interest piece? I think there's something beautiful in that, isn't there? Where we can share something which we can talk about and enjoy. You know, I, I'm very happy to tell you that Laura is my best friend. Um, she is also my wife. That's not always how it works. But I think part of the reason that we are best friends is because we always have so much to talk about. We are totally opposite about most things. But we love Jesus and we love ministry. Like when we go home, we talk about you guys all the time. We talk about this church. We talk about what's coming up next. We talk about the things that God is doing. We have so much to share because we are on a journey together. You know, even in this community, over this course of this next year, we want to try and create more spaces where you can be with people who are a bit like you. Some of our community groups this year are going to be a bit more specific about age and stage, not all of them. But it might just be that you need some other people around you once a week who you can talk about diapers with and sleep patterns. It might be that you've also got children, in which case we'll put you in one of those groups. <laughs> it might be that you're like, actually, I don't want to talk about relationships. I don't want to talk about children. I am single. I need to be with other people who are not talking about this thing. So I'm going to join this community group. And we're going to try really hard to create spaces which are different. We're going to create spaces for volunteering because if you don't like talking about feelings, then it's okay, you can go and do something with some people and you'll get to know them that way. But on the flip side of that, I also want to say that there's something very unique and special about a church which provides an amazing opportunity for friendships. Because I think what a church can offer, which almost no other space in the world does, is it offers friendships which are way outside of the kind of people who are just like you. You know that? Like we, a vintage, we love being a diverse community. We love that we have all these different ages and stages and backgrounds and nationalities and language. It's amazing. And, and part of the beautiful thing about it is that it gives this platform for community that's so beautifully woven and diverse. We were talking to our kids a couple of weeks back about coming back from uh, vacation. And we said, what are you looking forward to? And you know, they said, our oh, school and this and that. And, and they said, oh, church. And we said, well, what is it about church? And they named a bunch of people in this community. And some of them were their age. Some of them were completely different ages and stages to them. People who they think are uncles and aunts and grandparents and you know, great-grandparents. No, not really. Um, but just people who they love to be with. Because we have Jesus in common, community is possible, I believe, across diversity in a wonderful way in the church. John Wimber says, you know, people come to church for so many different reasons, but they always stay for one, friendships. You know, we long that vintage would be a place where you can be known, where you can be yourself, where you can be in community with other Ruths. So look in the right places. Thirdly, um, someone mentioned this a minute ago, reduce transience. Now, as someone who has moved into four different cities in the last 10 years, I know that this is hard. And I know it's also part of swimming in the water that we all do. But the last place I lived in was a little village of 6,000 people. And if you were to walk up to those people and say, like, how long have you been here? you would have likely got the answer forever. If you had asked the question, how long are you going to be here? You would have always got the same answer forever. 
People didn't come, they didn't leave, they were just there. Now, of course, LA is not like that, is it? And it's okay that it's not like that. But transience can have its impact on us. I was looking this last couple of weeks at some of our launch photos for Vintage four years ago, three and a half years ago. I was looking, particularly the under 40s who helped us launch this church. And I realized that almost none of them still live in LA. Almost none. Now, I pray that they're all doing really well and thriving and being called to different places. It's great, but they're not here anymore. And I wonder if we feel that. But I believe that transience is actually more than physicality. Because transience is actually an attitude. It's a state, isn't it? It's a sort of nomadic existence which chooses not to go deep with people. It chooses not to get into things because we think, well, I'm going to be out of here soon. So what's the point? What's the point in being vulnerable? These people are only going to be gone sometime soon. But I wonder what it would look like for us to choose to be a people who go deep, even if it's just for a short period. Right? I, Laura and I used to mentor students, undergrads, and we would always say to them, like, when you get here, stay here. Like, don't go home at the weekends. Don't go and, like, go off and party with your own friends. If you can help it, stay for at least the first 10 weeks. Because in the staying, you will build the kind of relationships that you need that will see you through your time at the university. So reduce the emotional and the physical transience. And then fourthly, which I think is linked to that, stop running. Stop running. You know, I think, I think part of the reason that we maybe do feel as transient as we do sometimes is because we feel like we are so vulnerable to being disappointed and hurt again. We are vulnerable to being disappointed and hurt. You know, I, I think it's easier sometimes, isn't it, almost to not be vulnerable with people because we think that they might let us down. We can become, if we're not careful, the kind of people who bounce. We bounce from relationship to relationship, church to church, community to community. And what we forget, though, is that every relationship goes through seasons. We're told that, you know, there are, in fact, four stages of a relationship. There is the excitement. Step one, you know, that person's so awesome. Like, they're so amazing. Like, they're going to be the next cool thing in my life. I need this person. And then there's like step two, which is disillusionment, which is like, actually, they suck. <laughs> Not really. Oh, no, they've got those bad habits, and they let me down, and they didn't turn up when they said they were going to turn up, and they, they, they do all these weird things, and actually, they're not as perfect as I hoped they were going to be. But then there's step three, which is adjustment. Adjustment to the fact that they're not actually perfect. And then if we ever get there, step four, which is health. Health and reality of a long-term relationship. But the problem is, is that I think in our transient world that we're almost programmed to only ever get to the first two stages. Right? We just bounce. Like, oh, this person's the next best thing. Oh, no, actually, they're not. Oh, man, that place to live is going to be the next place. It's going to be so much better than the last place. Oh, it kind of sucks. Oh, that church is going to be the next thing. Like, I've been waiting for this church my whole life. Oh, no, they kind of annoy me about all this stuff. Right? We just do it round and round. But, and if we're not careful, we just end up bouncing step after step, and we never get into any health. 
But I want to suggest that we need to put ourselves in that place of vulnerability, even if we've been burnt, even if we feel like it would be better to just journal and stay on our own, but we are designed to need people. And as Joseph Hallerman says, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow. People who leave do not grow. We all know people who are consumed with spiritual wanderlust, but we never get to know them very well because they cannot seem to stay put. They move along from church to church, ever searching for a congregation that will better satisfy their felt needs, like trees repeatedly transplanted from soil to soil. These spiritual nomads fail to put down roots and seldom experience lasting and fruitful growth in their Christian lives. There is a risky and vulnerable part of church, which is about being known. You know, in, in our staff meetings, we often talk about like, what more can we do to help relationships? But deep down, I also know that it's on us, isn't it? That we have to be vulnerable, that we have to be prepared to sort of get known. It's so easy to, to, to come late and go early and never really be known by anyone. But I wonder what it would look like this year to join a community group where people know you to volunteer on a team, to come a bit early and talk to somebody over coffee? What would it look like to be not just a person who is looking for a roof? Because I think if we all sat there long enough, just waiting for someone to tap us on the shoulder, we'll probably be there for a long time. But actually to choose to be a roof, to ask the Lord who we could be a roof to. And then finally, that before we do any of these things, that behind all of these things, that we firstly receive the healing of the true friend. That actually if we want to be a Ruth to somebody else, we realize we can't ever do this fully on their own. We need somebody who can help to heal us along the way. Somebody who can help to deal with our insecurities and our fears and our traumas, our selfishnesses, our anxieties, the things that hold us away from friendship. And what I love about the book of Ruth is that it points us ultimately towards a deeper friend, Jesus. It points us to a friendship that only God can fulfill. You see, like Ruth, Jesus came to bring us into friendship with God. Like Ruth, he left the comfort of his own home and family. Like Ruth, he came to be a cosmic immigrant to a place where he'd be rejected. Like Ruth, he saw you and me and knew that on our own we might not make it. Like Ruth, Ruth, he knew that to survive would mean his own life. And like Ruth, he came to give his own life as the ultimate friend. See, Jesus, in my life, has been the one true constant friend who is always there, who never lets me down, who is faithful and kind and good and honest with me. And I want to suggest that if you want to be a great friend, you need Jesus as your great friend first. Because when you find him, actually your story flips. And no longer is it primarily about what can I get from somebody else? How can they fill the hole in my life? But rather it actually becomes, what can I give? How can I serve? How can I love? How can I encourage and bless and to prefer another? And so we're going to pray. And then in a moment, we're going to come and take communion together.
Because it's in communion where we recognize the ultimate act of friendship that's ever been given to lay down a life for us. So will you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the ultimate friend that we need. And Lord, that if there's even one of us this morning who doesn't know what it means to have a personal relationship with you, I pray that even now you would just come and reveal yourself to them. But Lord, I also pray for all of us, because I imagine all of us have some sort of relational struggles here. Lord, that today you would come and bring us into deeper relationships with others. Lord, that you would put into our hearts and our minds those people, not only who might be Ruth to us, but we might be Ruth to them. People who we might serve and bless, commit to, journey with, alongside life. So come, even this morning, by your Holy Spirit and help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.